Welcome to the Green Majority program this week. We have a special uh, feature on the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, including some uh, history lessons and an excellent interview. We hope you enjoy it very, very much, as much as we enjoy doing it at the very least. If you support our work and you'd like to see more of this great reporting and coverage from the Green Majority, you can support us by becoming a member at patron.com, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Green Majority. Welcome. You are listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster. I'm in studio today with Stefan Hossiter. How are you doing? So we are going to uh, – uh, we have a, a bit of a special program in that this is the, the first of a, a new tradition here, which is that we will occasionally be trying to be slightly more like actual journalists once a month <laughs> for now. Uh, and we've reached an agreement based on that that the show will uh, will be p- posted uh, with National Observer. So yeah. today is, uh, today's special report uh, is comprehensive uh, overview of the Kinder Morgan uh, pipeline, which we decided before the decision came down, as Stefan was tweeting earlier this week. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, on Monday. I was like, I know it's coming soon. Uh, and then, and then let's figure this out. And then, uh, as, as we'll get to in a couple minutes, uh, what we, we reached out to Kinder Morgan to get, to get requests for, um, to give them some information, uh, about some of the things we're going to be talking about today. And I realized I sent it maybe seconds before the decision went, came through. So, uh, they did not respond, but I did get a bunch of answers from their website. So we have, we have some of the answers to the questions we're going to ask. Their, their um, website responds to questions for comment. Exactly. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and to some extent you have to, I, I can only imagine what the media person, what, what days was like. So maybe like in when they, when they get 10,000 emails in like the middle of, you know, middle of January, we'll get a response from them and we can report that. And we'll come back. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we do how we are, how, uh, uh, we have a very programmed and structured show today, so I just want to let you know that in the middle of the program, so after our first break, uh, Charlene Alec, uh, who is uh, a, a counselor and a spokesperson for the Tsleil-Waututh uh, First Nation, which is uh, one of the directly impacted communities uh, of this Trans Mountain Kinder Morgan pipeline, uh, is going to be joining us to uh, comment on the announcement and just provide us some additional information about uh, what's going on on the ground in Vancouver and for the affected First Nations communities that are opposed to this uh, pipeline. Uh, we will get some comments from her after the break. What's going to happen uh, after that is Stefan will also be talking about uh, uh, some other stuff regarding what youth could be doing if they weren't busy fighting this pipeline. But what's going to happen right now? Oh, and I should also mention, uh, as also is unusual, I'm going to be saving most of my editorializing for the bonus show. <laughs> so if you notice a distinct lack of editorializing, don't worry. It's just later. <laughs> ah, there you go. Uh, so what's going to happen right now is I'm going to provide a very quick, as quick as I can, actually, just a little history lesson on Kinder Morgan, and then I'm going to throw to Stefan uh, for some additional uh, comments on that as well. Uh, but so just so we don't run out of time, I'm going to get going right here. So the Kinder Morgan uh, existing pipeline runs about 1,150 kilometers and transports both conventional crude and diluted oil sands bitumen between Edmonton, Alberta and Westbridge Main Terminal in BC, uh, Burnaby, B.C., 
the pipeline began operating in 1953 uh, and is known as most of its time for the Trans Mountain Pipeline beginning in 1961. However, the NEB, the National Energy Board in Canada, began to keep regular records on incidents requiring operators to provide reports. In its first few years, they were struggling, however, to, to actually meet staff to get these reports. And so as a result, uh, incident reports prior to 1961 are, are basically incredibly unreliable. They're, they're, uh, the academic paper I was uh, getting this information for, this part of this information from, said limited and incomplete. That's, mm -hmm. uh, so read from that, which you will. Uh, so we basically, we can't say much about that. Uh, since, however, 1961, there's uh, been a wide range of incidents uh, with regards to this. And keep in mind, this is all about this specific pipeline. This isn't sort of, you know, round the world horror stories. This is this specific pipeline. Uh, there's been a wide range of incidents, including oil spells, fires, explosions, various malfunctions, workplace injuries, and deaths. Uh, Kinder Morgan uh, purchased the Trans Mountain Pipeline in 2005. They're, of course, based in Houston, Texas. And uh, is now uh, the pipeline is now largely referred to as the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, but it's officially the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So, in uh, <clears throat> uh, more recently, the Trans Mountain Expansion Project, which was uh, originally filed its project description uh, for twinning the existing pipeline and uh, providing uh, and turning back on uh, some previously uh, left. Um, uh, existing uh, threshold in some other pipeline that basically wasn't being used it was in 2013. Uh, this would include 987 uh, kilometers of new pipeline, uh, changing a bunch of facilities, upgrading some pump stations, uh, and the reactivation of 193 kilometers of existing pipeline. Uh, it would increase, uh, according to Kinder Morgan, the pipeline expansion would increase the amount of oil transported from Edmonton to Burnaby uh, from the current 300,000 300, barrels a day to 890,000 barrels a day. So I'm going to run through a quick couple of quick things there. We, you know, a complete paper on this is available. I was going to say could be done is available on this uh, is uh, all of the notes from which I gathered this information will, of course, be available on the show post. You can look through it yourself. I encourage you to do so, in fact. Uh, but I'm just going to run through some highlights here really quickly before I toss to, uh, to Stefan. So the end of, uh, the, the uh, project description was 2013. In January 2014, the NAB filed an application to participate, which basically uh, called uh, is started the official NAB process. Part of this process. Uh, is to get uh, people uh, to comment and be uh, something called interveners. These are technical terms. We won't go through that now, but basically there's two different ways you can be involved. Some of them are interveners. Some of them are uh, commenter status. Some of the listeners of the show may have actually been involved in, the, in that process. Uh, of those, uh, they received 1,111 11, applications uh, and 798 were uh, uh, granted. From that, uh, part of the process is that Kinder Morgan is re uh, required for any officially submitted comments. Kinder Morgan was required uh, as part of their application process to provide responses. I want to just pull two highlights I pulled from this responses, which was uh, the officially called responses to letters of comment from August of 2015. In response to commenters' concerns about climate change, I'm now quoting from the report. Some of the letters contained uh, – some of the letters comment raised – some of the letters comment raised concerns related to upstream development and downstream use of crude oil with particular emphasis on GHG emissions and climate change. As specified in the NEB ruling number 25, these issues are beyond the scope of this proceeding. Trans Mountain has included a discussion of the board's previous rulings on the scope of this proceeding. And the court upheld those rulings uh, as issues outside the NEB's jurisdiction. In response to concerns about uh, uh, oil spills, uh, the Again, quoting from the uh, response to comment, Trans Mountain's commitments to conduct routine pipeline inspections and monitoring for leaks to prevent any sizable releases are discussed in blank section. 
routine inspection and leak detection. Uh, as stated in the final agreement, the probability of significant residual environmental effect rising from accidents and manu- uh, malfunctions as a result of construction and operation of the project is low. Okay, so that's what they put in their report. Now going back to the research. Between 1961 and 2013, Transmounted reported 81 liquid hydrocarbon spills to the NEB, an average of 1.53 per year, uh, not including uh, incidents that were poor, uh, below reporting thresholds. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an amount below which they don't have to report it. Uh, and there's also um, some other information implying that there may be of some, uh, there may be in fact many, although this is uh, I cannot confirm this is true, but many accuse. Um, I, I would need more time to look into to do that. But we'll simply say that that uh, many say that there have been actually other accidents as well that that should have been reported and didn't. I can't confirm or deny that, but people do make that uh, accusation. Uh, I can't confirm or deny it at this time. However, seventy uh, percent were uh, at pump stations, thirty uh, percent largely on the line. So they've occurred, uh, according to some, uh, according to one of the research papers that I looked at. Um, but in random sporadic fashion, so often the result of accidents, material failures, and unforeseen causes. The most environmentally disastrous oil spill in the history of the pipeline was caused by faulty welds and other construction deficits, human error, and forces of nature. Uh, in some cases, the company, uh, sorry, in one particular case, the company resorted to use of sonic leak detectors in order to find the faulty wells. Uh, this was uh, in Blue River, BC, an isolated uh, and roadless segment um, of the pipeline that was uh, completely uh, near water. Uh, the company had great difficulty locating the leak, uh, and its sonic detector was useless uh, in rainy conditions. Well, that's kind of a flaw. Uh, for three weeks, the engineers filed for three weeks. Let me emphasize that engineers failed to locate the leak as it gushed at 12 to 15 barrels per hour. Eventually, they resorted to filling that section of the line with fluorescent dye and removing each segment piece by piece until the leak could be located. In 2005, in Abbotsford, BC, uh, com- residents complained about uh, an odor uh, coming from a nearby uh, tank farm. Trans Mountain uh, was uh, delivering crude uh, to uh, its facilities in Washington. Employees investigated the complaint, but apparently could not determine the source of the odor. Uh, later, more residents uh, began to complain. More and more residents began to complain. And now a week later, in July 15th of that year, uh, being 2005, uh, a company employee discovered a release of crude in the nearby Killard Creek. Excessive landfill operations had shifted the peat, uh, causing the pipeline to buckle and crack, spilling 210,000 liters of crude, covering 5.755 square meters of land and affecting uh, 14,300 square meters. There's actually more, but I'm going to skip it here now for time because I'm out of time. So the very last thing before we pass to Stefan, two main things basically was that uh, in 2015, Harper government – chose uh, basically the Friday before a long weekend to announce that uh, um, uh, Stephen Kelly would be a full-time member of the National Energy Board, uh, saying that he'd uh, had unprecedented ability to do this. He had technical, commercial, regulatory, and strategic advice, uh, was an all-round great guy defending him as well. Uh, Two other high-profile people on the panel, including Mark Ellison and uh, Robin Allen, stepped down basically out of uh, complaint. Uh, and then about uh, at the end of that month, Transmountain uh, filed a letter, including uh, basically saying that they would remove Mr. Kelly from the board. Despite all this, in 2016, the National Energy Board found that Trans Mountain Project ex- is in Canada's uh, Trans Mountain Expansion Project is in Canada's public interest and recommends that the Governor Council approve the project, subject to 157 uh, conditions, uh, which it would, and order the NEB to issue a certificate of public convenience and necessity. Mm. In 2016. November 29th, Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline Project was approved. 
And a quote taken from Justin Trudeau about that. Canadians know that strong action on the environment is good on the, is good on the economy. Trudeau said during a press conference, flanked by five cabinet ministers, we said that major pipelines could only be built if we had a price on carbon and strong environmental protection in place. We said indigenous people must be respected and part of the process. It was using this framework and understanding, he explained, that his cabinet decided to approve the projects through the prime minister, also said that there isn't a country in the world that would find billions of barrels of oil and leave it in the ground where the market, uh, well, there is a market for it. Thank you. Um, and... That's so. There's the so that's sort of the run through of, of of where we sit. Uh, that's up to Wednesday, I guess. Um, and and so what I want to sort of cover briefly before we get to the first break is let's let's make the strongest argument you can. You know, this is something that I've that I've done a couple times on the show. Uh, I had a whole piece about why you might support the TPP uh, things like that. And so this is sort of uh, the first question I actually sent uh, to. Uh, to Trans Mountain uh, was the question: How would you pitch this to our viewer, our, our listeners? Like, how how would uh, how would you, as the oil company, knowing that you have a hostile uh, listenership, um, how would you pitch it? How do you make this case? And and so, from what I can tell, from sort of going through the website and picking out the pieces that they sort of really, they really, that they really go for, it's. Basically, what they've done uh, is they've given a bunch of money uh, to a variety to, – to, to almost everything along the actual pipeline that goes. Um, like almost – I think it's about like $9 million. We'll check that in half a second. Um, to the actual $8.47 million with, uh, to communities along the 95% of the pipeline corridor. Um, so they've – so they're clearly – they've got this sort of community benefit agreements going on. Uh, to try to gain traction for the sort of space right around the the pipeline, and they've got a lot of agreements about how they're sort of you know they're they're helping national parks do things, uh, they're, they're cleaning up some wet some uh, some other things that are related to or even actually unrelated to the workshop that has happened to be there, and they're like we'll clean this up while we do this, um, and part of their pitch is that they actually that one of the arguments that they're actually going to try to make the the space around the pipeline actually even more like their 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 term for it is net benefit they're actually trying to uh f- create more greenery and better living uh, and better you know quote unquote environment around the pipeline uh than it was there beforehand and now that's Obviously, a, a very difficult task, uh, but it is it is part of their part of the goal. Now, of course, the the one thing that can be said about that is that that in in, in nowhere does it mention climate change. Uh, you know, the the entire pitch really really speaks to the sort of conservationist and naturalist side of environmentalism, being like it will look pristine in other things uh, and will be very very good at cleaning up leaks and and, and 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 you know they've added a whole bunch during the consultation they ended up adding like thirty more valves to 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 help limit the amount of leaks that could happen stuff like that. Um, Yet, yet none of the mention actually has to do with climate change, uh, which leads you then to the sort of question, okay, well, what is the strongest argument? And the strongest argument obviously here is, is this dichotomy of like, well, we, it's going to make us all this money. Um, and, and at this point, uh, in the last two years, actually, uh, the, the, per, the estimate of how much this is actually going to cost Kinder Morgan to actually build has gone up. Uh, in, in 2014, uh, they actually believed it was – uh, it was going to be $5.4 billion. It's now raised to $6.8 billion. Uh, and that's and they, they basically the, the argument is that that's $6.8 billion directly into the Canadian economy uh, for actually building the pipeline itself. Uh, and then arguing that a, then there's a $73.5 billion increase in revenue, uh, increased revenue sort of more generally 
which would then lead to $46.7 billion, $46. billion in additional taxes and royalties, uh, of course, in part due to increased tanker traffic, which is part of one of the major contentions here with this, part of this pipeline. Um, now, of course, all of these numbers are one of those things where it's like in 2014, some economists from Simon Fraser University and the Goodman Group came in and, call, and called some of these numbers overstated. Uh, now, again, that's 2014 when they thought it was going to be $1.4 million, billion dollars less. Uh, so that has to be factored in a little bit. Um, but basically, they were the, the quote here is that saying that Trans Mountain numbers were overstated in part because they overestimated jobs. They've overestimated the taxes that would be paid as a result of these jobs. Um, and that also the tax revenues that would go, would go to the more the federal government than the provincial government, which is another thing that this actually think that, that Kinder Morgan really has an issue with right now is that BC really does not like this. And BC does not, not like this in a, in a, in a way that I don't think is really un, fully even understood, uh, in the rest of the, in the rest of Canada. Uh, the, 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 the connection of how unhappy they are, uh, about this pipeline is, is, is important and, and for us to note and see. Um, but you know, like again, there's like when you see this on the numbers, they did. It's interesting again because it's it's they did a ton of consultation. They had they had one thousand seven hundred meetings between project met team members and stakeholder groups. So they met with everybody. Uh, well, not everybody. Who knows everybody? But they met with a lot of people. Uh, and they had one hundred fifty nine open houses along the pipelines uh, and marine corridors. Now again, these are sort of these are difficult because these are meetings. Uh, which definitely did happen, and then, but you know, again, if the if the meeting is a bunch of climate activists being like, this is going to lock us into un, uh, climate change, and they're like, but we are meeting with you now. Uh, that's not necessarily the most effective meeting. Um, now, again, they've gotten a bunch of support from a lot of the communities around it. Uh, arguably, this is actually the one that actually has more support than the Northern Gateway, uh, which I think uh, the last section I'm going to talk to about briefly about sort of the strategy around environmental groups going after this one rather than Northern Gateway. Um, but the, you know, there's a, they have now, they've, up, they've now reached 40 letters of support uh, from Aboriginal groups, uh, at least on their website. Uh, I believe I believe you have 39 on your numbers, and maybe they recently got one, or there's in contention about whether one of the groups exists or not. Yeah, some some of the reports that I was citing are, are were a little bit out of date. So yeah. if if anything, those numbers are if there's a higher number, it's likely true. Yeah. Some of the reports were a few years old. Ah, so they got so perhaps they got they got one more, um, and and so these are real things. Like these are. This is the this is how this process works. You know, you you meet with people, you, you you collaborate, and I think for me, it's one of those things where it's like, if this was any other type of project, you could be you could you could think about it and be like, okay, you did do a lot of consultation, you are putting money into into the local economy, you are working to to to, to mitigate the potential dangers of the of, of the space. Um, you know, uh, the pipelines have been built and exist currently. Um, and and so we can so like I, I think you could have a normal conversation about this, except that it's sort of we're having this conversation outside of the one the the, the, the major context of climate change, um, and 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 then also this and also as as, as our second uh, interview will have, um, we will uh, you know we will talk about this uh, in the second in the second break uh, or the second what we're coming up to uh, with with the soil tooth uh, first nation. Uh, about their sort of piece of this. Um, but yeah, like, you know, as you pointed out earlier, the, the NEB did not decide that it was in scope. Uh, this, the, what, what Trudeau just did was actually a, was the, was the follow-up to the NEB not saying it was, climate was in scope, right? Like, they were basically like, well, climate change is not in scope, but we need, uh, but we will do another review. And the review that we just saw was that review. Um, and so basically Trudeau is, is here saying, this is going to be fine. 
Um, which, you know, like to some extent, he said he was going to approve pipelines and he did. Um, and, and, and now we're sort of, and now we're seeing the, now we'll see what happens is basically where we're at. Yeah. I think the most disingenuous email I got all week was actually from the green party and it was titled shocked liberals. <laughs> no, nobody was shocked. Well, they actually said they would do it and then they did it like as much as uh, for everything else you can say about them. They said they would do it and they did it. Uh, now I would wish they did the same thing about portion representation and, and first person post, but it's an entirely different matter. Or uh, truth and reconciliation. Commission. Exactly. There's other things we'd also wish they would do. Um, but, uh, uh, let's. I think it's time for the music break so we can get to our our, our, our esteemed guest. Yeah, well, just I, I think we'll just we'll remind folks that we we do believe you, me, Stefan, and I both have comments. They're just going to be reserved mostly for the bonus <laughs> show this week. So so don't worry, it's coming. But first, we're going to go to Neil. We have a, an interview after the break. It is with the uh, uh, counselor for the Salawatuth uh, First Nation and as well uh, one of the spokespeople, Charlene Alec. She'll be coming up right after this break. But first, Neil. Hi there. Um, yeah, the first uh, music break is a song by Leanne Batesmasak Simpson, and it's a new album that she has out. It's called Flight, and uh, the song is called These Two. Like I'm a deer on nobody's shelf. And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and syndicated on our partners all the way across the country, including Rabble.ca, National Observer, our own website, and a uh, whole assortment of uh, syndicate partner community stations uh, internationally now as well. Uh, you can look for more information as well as all the notes from the previous section as uh, as well as the rest of the show on GreenMajority.ca on today's show post. Uh, but now we go to our interview for uh, today. We have the uh, official spokesperson and a counselor for the Tsleil-Waututh uh, First Nation out in Vancouver, Charlene Alec, who's joining us on the phone. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I want to start just very sort of basically, and then we'll get a little bit more specific, which is just for for listeners who who maybe uh, are are not super familiar with this, uh, the history of this project. Would you just sort of uh, we'll outline uh, just uh, starting, what is the relationship of the Salawatuth uh, First Nation to this pipeline? How is this an issue for you to be dealing with? Um, well, the when the project came to us, it just was um, a. a pipeline expansion project, but there's so many other different factors that go along with that um, project. There's the, not just the widening or, um, you know, the corridor that the pipeline carries, but right here, that's right in front of Tlaotuth, there's an there's inlet, and it's only like maybe um, a mile away from us where the terminal is, and they want to expand the t- holding tanks. On land, they want to expand the uh, the dock where um, the tankers would come in. So there's many other uh, major factors to this project um, that pose a risk that should have been um, either environmentally assessed or, or went through a process that that um, secures the environment. So one of the uh, first things that came up for us, we were just actually talking about it just before the break a little bit, was uh, was uh, wh- how how surprised were people? So, uh, well, let's talk about uh, you specifically. W- were you surprised when we got the announcement earlier this week that the pipeline uh, was getting the green light? No, we've had struggles throughout the whole process of um, trying to have our voices be heard and our needs uh, be met just in... Um, having a um, conversation at a table where decision-makers 
um, could hear our side of the story. That had never happened throughout the process. And since day one, we um, we had asked for that because through the National Energy, or Energy Board process, um, it was so flawed and there were so many different um, um, factors that were that we were up against, that everything was gearing towards them saying yes. You know, the way the questions were asked um, were just geared towards them approving it. So when we got the announcement, we weren't surprised. But, you know, we went through all uh, all that process, and so that's so maybe heart- it was so disappointing. Maybe heartbroken but not surprised. Uh, so yeah. one of the things that have been highlighted and, and has been oft-repeated by both uh, Kinder Morgan press releases, just in the news in general and, and by Trudeau himself, was to emphasize at every opportunity uh, that this has been an unprecedented level of uh, Indigenous uh, 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 conversations and consultations, uh, highlighting that you know all input has been taken into account and specifically often highlighting the 39 communities that have in fact signed on. Uh, so do, do you feel like this process was done in, in good faith? What is your response to that claim that that you've been unprecedentedly consulted no and i think that's a that's a unfair um way to look at that if as well as the other communities that they say have signed on i'm very hesitant to believe those numbers to be true as well um because what from what i'm hearing is um kinder morgan has traveled along the the pipeline route and have offered amounts of money um, and that deeming that as consultation or support for the project. So I'm really hesitant with that. And for ourselves as Tlaiwetid Nation, our needs um, have been repeatedly um, put aside and have never been addressed. So, uh, Charlene, putting aside for a minute the the idea of the consultation, the, one of the other major claims, or in fact, I would I, I might even say the claim that's used to sort of bully out the first claim about criticism about consultation is the claim that you know regardless of what uh, communities think about this, that this is ultimately for your benefit. Uh, do you, is is what benefits have been uh, offered? Was this it was this in any way a sort of controversial position within uh, your community? Is there is there dissent or or is there more uh, is there more or less uh, sort of agreement? On, on this opposition? Um, from the government you're, you're speaking about? Uh, from, from the point of view of the, uh, yeah, the, essentially the government and the, and the pipeline companies are saying that, you know, regardless of what the opinion is locally, that this is ultimately going to benefit all Canadians and that, you know, just, you know, basically trust us and this will work in your favor eventually. How do you feel about those claims? Um, well, even in our own research of um, finding um, what was going to be in the pipeline is the d- diluted bitumen. Um, we did a little bit of research um, on that and how that reacts in water. That was never revealed by by Canada. Um, an oil spill. We did a drift uh, drift test, um, an oil spill test, where we uh, put out drift cards with Rain Coast Conservation, and um, drift cards were found as far as. Um, Haida Gwaii. So um, that has never been um, guaranteed or, or kind of looked at. They said that they've um, shinied up the Coast Guard station, but you know that didn't guarantee how the spill would be cleaned up. Um, so there's like the, the benefits that they talk about for our nation is we're Tlaiwetis, we're people of the inlet. 
we have a connection to this inlet greater than um, than anyone, I think. And um, to secure that connection to there has never, ever been addressed to us. And to have any kind of benefit or price tag put to that. Uh, Shirlene, my, my co-host actually wants to jump in and ask you a question. This is Stefan. Uh, yeah. Uh, hi, Shirlene. Thank you so much for, for being on. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm curious about, uh, about this sort of, this discussion of, was there a way that they could, uh, you sort of said it, at first it seemed as if it was going to be just, an, you know, just another pipeline expansion, uh, and, you know, as, as with, with all sorts of things. And then it was this sort of inlet that came, that, 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 that was clearly going to be in more at risk. And that's really important to, to your community. I'm wondering if there was a way that they could have, they could have changed this so that you might have they might have gained your support. Uh, like it, if they had say you know moved or that that protect. Is there a way they could protect this inlet in that they're that they're ignoring? They could guarantee um, that there would be purified water through the pipe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you want to keep something pristine and in its natural state, you don't overburden it with um, pollutant chemicals. Right. That's the. That's the and, and if he said that in the announcement, he wants to keep the uh, the coastline pristine. How do you keep something that's in its natural state, um, the very sensitive ecosystem that lies in this inlet, and then put industry on top of that? So, um, uh, Shirlene, I, I, I have a, a, a little bit of a, a different, uh, difficult question for for me to ask you, and is, I don't think it'll be difficult for you to to answer it but it's 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 one that i think may <clears throat> i think that is one that 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 may be uncomfortable for for perhaps some of our listeners but it's something that occurred to me when i was doing the research for this project which is mm-hmm. it's been my observation that there's been an undeniable uptick in concern for first nation uh, treaty rights in canada among non first nation climate activists due to the position of uh, you know of uh, sort of as a, as having leverage over pipelines uh, has this in any way in in uh, you can speak uh, personally if you wish or on behalf of uh, your community, um, but does this in any way make uncomfortable partners? Uh, seeing sort of you know, Canada has been running roughshod over First Nation treaty rights for a much longer time than we've been fighting pipelines. Uh, do does your community, or, or do you, if you prefer to answer personally, uh, truly feel like allies within this larger climate movement? No, and I guess this is why a um, it, it's a little bit of a benefit for its limited nation to be shown in this light where we're not just the opposition. We've been a very progressive, we're a small community, yes, I'll bet, but we've been very um, open, like the, the, the business door has been open for us. We're very pro-development. We've got a lot of projects that are going on, um, partnering with a lot of our neighboring um, companies and businesses. So th- this is this having... Having this opportunity to to you know share that that Slaywood um, is very much towards development, um, but just not with an oil company. <laughs> Uh, so uh, one of the other things that came up, and uh, and it, it might be longer than than I'm aware of, but uh, I've only started to hear about it uh, uh, recently, uh, was the uh, Indigenous Treaty Alliance. Can you can you explain what that is? Absolutely. This um, alliance um, that we've been a part of, uh, I would like to think since day one, we um, met with a couple of grand chiefs from across Canada. And that was concerning Energy East, um, as well as 
Enbridge. Enbridge, I think, was really forefront in um, the First Nations that were opposing that. And we just came together and, and just kind of really upheld an ancestral um, Indigenous law. Uh, like I was saying, Tsleil-Waututh means people of the inlet, which, you know, our ties to this land and this water are going to be different. So really um, upholding that kind of traditional knowledge and putting it into the sense where it can be upheld in a, in a treaty. And uh, we, one of the other things we've been covering on this program for several weeks now, of course, we've been we've the last few weeks we've basically almost half of the show or more has been devoted to the uh, the uh, protests, ongoing protests in uh, North Dakota uh, around the Dakota Access Pipeline as well. Um, has the and and while there's been and we were reporting last week, there's been a sadly small amount from the uh, mainstream media. The independent uh, media has been all over that, and social media has been completely lit up with uh, press about um, that particular fight. Um, how, if any, has that impacted um, your resolve, attitude, uh, tactics uh, here with response to the Canadian pipelines? Um, we've uh, we've actually been down there. Our Tlaotis Nation um, Sacred Trust Initiative team, um, we're on our way to, um, with the Treaty Alliance um, chiefs, we were on our way to deliver a totem pole um, that ties us together. So there's a totem pole at this end of the pipeline and at the other end of the pipeline, and now this one um, in Winnipeg. And they had asked us, to stop by, so we drove the totem pole down there, and we met with the leaders down there, and they also signed on the Treaty Alliance, and um, I just feel, got that sense of, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, the exact same way that Slavitus has went out on the land and um, performed a ceremony, um, and then the, in the media it was deemed as, as protesting. So, you know, we've we gathered a whole bunch of um, friends and allies and people who are concerned about the inlet, and we paddled out in the water, and they said, now the protesters are taken to the water. And I'm like, we did a water ceremony, and, you know, we, we gathered our strength together. And that's exactly what happened down in North Dakota. I know that they were doing ceremony out on the land, and um, they started to get to get violent with them, so... Yeah, and um, it's it's it it feels like it's like everywhere the entire world sort of uh, it feels very clenched at the moment. I know that uh, I mean we took a week off from from covering uh, the news after uh, you know uh, it was announced that uh, Trump won the election just because Stefan and I were just personally feeling like so rattled and whatnot. So it, 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 do you do you feel I mean between you know the announcements and and the changing geopolitical structure and 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 all of this uh, stuff uh, you know that's going on? It, it feels like it's a, you know every time we get a step forward, we get two steps uh, back. So I I I'd like to I, I think I was going to ask you sort of you know how this has impacted your fight. I think you basically just sort of answered that. So instead you know what I what I'd like to to offer you. We've just got a, a couple of minutes left here. Is uh, I just want to provide you an opportunity, a couple of minutes to maybe uh, tell people how um, uh, how they can uh, support you. Is there is there uh, things that you would like people to do who aren't uh, local, who can't come uh, down and see you personally um, to uh, support you in any way? And and just if you have any sort of final comments uh, as well, go ahead. 
Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm in agreement with you that it feels like we're back in the 1950s where they really um, shoved Indigenous voices aside and, and made their policies and made their um, decisions like that. So now that we do have um, the ability to hire a lawyer, to organize ourselves in a way where, you know, we won't be thrown in jail, we've got um, a company helping us out to... Um, you know, to help our, our fight along, and that's uh, Raven. Um, trust. I'm sorry, I do not. If you go to our website, uh, Bloated Nation Sacred Trust Initiative, um, TWN Sacred Trust, um, we do have um, links on there as well. We also have another campaign for um, Sacred Trust, and that's just reaching out to all moms and what they would teach their kids or what they want for their kids. Do they want this pristine uh, coastline? And um, how, how do you feel? Like this type of project that would impact us in so many ways, what would you like to see the outcome? Is this what you really want? Um, there's this false facade of, of having the need for fossil fuels um, when we've got these climate changes uh, agreements. So just really wanting the voice of the people really um, we're not telling people what to do, but just asking, really, and um, trying to put it within our story. Yeah. And the the line we like to use here on the show is the GDP of a dead planet is zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you very yeah. much again. We've been speaking to the counselor and official spokesperson for this Sailor uh, Watooth uh, First Nation, uh, Charlene Alec. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. All right. So, uh, Stefan, quick comment. Uh, well, you know, I think that's it's funny. It's one of those things where, where I think the moment when she when 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 she was just sort of like, how do you keep something pristine if you just keep adding chemicals to it? Sort of is like one of those things where it's like it, 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 it was a piece of just of just sort of just like when you say it like that, it's obvious. It, 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 and I think and it's, it's it was just so just sort of like. This is like you can't say I want to keep something pristine, and then I'm also going to do something that will obviously not do that. It's, that's just it's just clear fact. And I think that's to me that's the piece that that can't be ignored. You know, this is this the, these are pe- the people who live who are their name, as she said, was the name of the their people of the inlet, and they're literally concerned about the destruction of this of this inlet. They they want to keep it pristine in a real way, and and I think that's uh, to. Let alone the the, con- the climate conversation, which we'll get to after the break. That piece alone should be enough. Like mm. if you you own this is your traditional land, you you have the space. It's your space, and and they were and this is a dire threat to that space. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of like you know that's respecting respecting tree rights is respecting this kind of conversation. Yeah. And in the bonus show, I'll be getting to my rundown of uh, four big reasons to call BS on Trudeau's sort of announcement and the reasons why why he's probing it. But, but uh, there, what you just pointed out right there, which is that we, we shouldn't even need to go that far. Uh, is is sort of the case, but we will nonetheless get to the reasons why I'm calling BS on a lot of the arguments that uh, Truo made in the bonus show. But for now, we're going to go to our second and final Neil break, guided to us by Neil. <laughs> I like the idea of a Neil break. A Neil break. Yeah. <laughs> so for uh, your next Neil break, we're going to have another song. I, I missed uh, named the last song. It was actually Road Salt. And this one is by Leanne Simpson also, and it's called These Two. And uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, 
Leanne Simpson is a uh, she's a music artist, a prof- prolific poet, writer, professor. So if you haven't checked out her work, uh, I encourage you to do so. And I just listened to a, a lecture of her lectures of hers yesterday, and uh, she is just really good at framing environmental con- concern outside of sort of Western mainstream uh, understandings of environmental problems. So. Uh, Check out, check out uh, if you're interested in, in her work, check out her uh, lectures on, on uh, YouTube. That was your nail break. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, sitting in studio here with Stefan Hossetter on our special report episode, Guide to Kinder Morgan Pipeline uh, Announcement, maybe, subtitle. Yeah, there you go. Subheading. Yeah. Uh, something like that. Um, and uh, we're in the home stretch now. So uh, I'll just remind you uh, quickly that if you're uh, interested in any of the information that we've put forward on the program today, you're looking for uh, links uh, to the Sacred Trust, perhaps. Uh, you want to get some more information on Charlene uh, Alec or uh, Slewatu First Nation uh, or any of the other reporting. Perhaps you're, you're curious where I got some of the facts for my little report at the beginning of the program. All of that is available on the show post, uh, which you'll be able to find at greenmajority.ca uh, or any of our partner posters as well, yep. including Rabble and National Observer. Uh, and uh, of course, you can also get the music and everything else uh, and learn more about us. There's some fun pictures of Stefan and I on there, too. That is true. Uh, but without uh, further delay, Stefan, you are going to lead our final section here. Take it away. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so this is the, you know, we've heard uh, from a couple different sides of the uh, of the equation so far. Um, and, uh, and and so now we got the last subset, which is just you know, the people we talk about the most about on the show, generally environmentalists, um, which... Uh, which responded, you know, as you'd imagine, uh, about this call. Uh, and I think here the, the part I want to talk about first is the strategy that exists within uh, within this within within the climate movement. Uh, because you know, as much as as much as um, you know, that we, we talked last week about this sort of discussion of whether whether or not um, youth need, could learn to play the game, quote unquote. Um, Environmentalists are playing the game, and they're playing the game in a very specific and interesting way, which a part of me which finds very interesting, because Trudeau didn't just approve one pipeline; um, he he approved a second pipeline, the L three pipeline, and rejected Northern Gateway, and so he came out and had and so it was like these are the things that I'm doing, and what I found interesting was. I didn't even know the L3 pipeline existed. Uh, the, the, the third pipeline that, that they were talking about, it was not even like, you know, again, I try to immerse myself in all this information as much as possible. Uh, I'm reading everything I can. Uh, and yet I still am, it w- was not certain about that. And, um, and yet, and then I, I know, obviously heard of Northern Gateway and the environment movement had made a very clear decision about a month ago or maybe two months ago, uh, or they made the decision that may, may, they may have made forever ago, but they've, they really ramped up pressure in the last couple of months on Trans Mountain and Trans Mountain specifically. If, if all of the pressure they had put on Trans Mountain was on Northern Gateway, they would have been caught flat-footed, I think, a little bit by this because they would have been like, okay, great, we got what we asked for, and they would allow the Trudeau government sort of to walk forward saying, look, we've listened to you. We, 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 we canceled that one you didn't, that you didn't want. Uh, but by ignoring – uh, not ignoring, but, but, but by by sort of pushing that, shelving that one, and really, really focusing on 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 Trans Mountain, which I think they realized was the was the tipping point 
I think they figured, you know, fig- I think the third pipeline L3 was going to go through no matter what. The first pipeline, North Gateway's problems get rejected no matter what. And so the real conversation was going to be around this one. And to be honest, I'm pretty sure they figured it would get passed anyways. I don't, I don't, I really don't think that they, that they actually thought they might win this battle. Um, but by, by focusing on this one, it gears us up for the, the future fight. Um, and this may be the first time that that uh, well not the first time but a, a, a rare time uh, that a lot of conservative um, voices in, in in Canada agree with a lot of environmentalist voices in Canada because both of them think this pipeline isn't going to get built. Uh, you know, uh, for they they both have different feelings about that, um, but that is that is where you stand. And you know it, because it's it's. This is this is going to be a a, a slog. This is going to be you know like tra- Transman immediately came out being like yes we understand there'll be tons of ap- things that it, the, the, we understand there'll be tons of uh, uh, the opposition and it'll be a difficult conversation uh, and then they fully said and we hope the people against this will be like you know will will um will will be lawful basically basically saying don't stand in front of this pipeline um, which. I'm going the designated uh, p- uh, p- protest areas two kilometers north, Stefan. <laughs> yes, no, no, exactly. just take the just take the exit number three, and it's uh, and yeah, there there's a there's a little podium you can stand. Yeah, in. exactly. It's 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 a great, lovely place. Yeah. Uh, it's it a pristine happens, environment. Yeah, actually. it happens to be some reclaimed uh, oil field. Just don't uh, <laughs> just don't uh, kick up any divots when you're golfing. It's, it only goes about an inch deep. Um, but uh, yeah, so here's the. Uh, so, like, I, I hate to break it to Trans Mountain. I think, although I can't imagine this comes as a surprise to them either, I'm going to guess some people are going to get in the way of this pipeline. I don't know. Uh, but judging from a lot of the reactions from the activists, I think you might have a very, you know, you might get some people on land and by sea. Uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, they've, the environmentalists have been gearing up for this fight in BC for years. Uh, you know, and, and I think you're, you're going to see, what could be the defining, uh, you know, battle uh, in Canadian politics over the you know next while? And I, I think it might get ignored, and I think it might be lost. But I think when you're looking at this sort of this sort of pu- push and pull on uh, on policy. You know, you got. It's funny. It's, Trudeau got a lot of credit for for this for this for the, for for this from particular people who were sort of who came out of the stance of like, well, you know, he knew this was going to take was going to be a hard one to do, and like this is like this this is like separates him from the sort of idea that he's sort of trying to be everything for all people. Um, and obviously, he doesn't see himself as that way. Uh, I think he still sees himself as that, as that, that these two things can't be can't be done. And I, I think you know, something he tipped his hand with that last sentence uh, of of there's not an organiza- there's not a country in the world that wouldn't be doing this right now. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, right for pointing that out, that was the most defensive thing he could possibly could have said. Yeah, and again, you know, like that's that was very specifically clear. Like that's you know, he's basically like to some extent that was a look. Our hands are tied. We have to do this. Yeah. Translation of that was. Come <laughs> and you know, and and, and and you know, and there's a lot of a res- there's a lot of response also on 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 Twitter uh, from sort of quote unquote centrists being like you know, basically scolding environmentalists for this idea that we should that if you know if we stop if basically if we fight if we're mad about everything they'll, people will stop trying to pander to us like if you can't ever satisfy them then why then they'll stop trying at all and I think there's I like. 
I can understand the way you could see that, given, you know, like, if you're someone from industry who just thinks all pipelines are good, the fact that they can't, didn't, you know, let, you know, like, as Ron Ambrose uh, uh, criticized them for not passing uh, also Northern Gateway, um, this would seem ridiculous, right? It's like, oh, like, oh, we know these things are good. They are add to our economy. Why aren't we doing that? And, I think it's, uh, just really quickly, yeah. I think it's interesting to note as well that she also said, uh, she also uh, said that she was certain that, that even Kinder Morgan would eventually be killed. Mm. Uh, right. And I'd like to know more about that, but that I don't necessarily disagree. Uh, but I think it's I think it's interesting that they're taking that tact already. Yeah. Well, I think I, it's funny, I think it's yeah. It's funny. I think you're getting these two very different sides. The conservatives basically are trying to go the liberals and doing everything possible to get this built, uh, and and the you know and, and the environmental sort of saying like no, we're just going to stand in front yeah, of it. I think that's her way of saying don't you dare back out of this. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Um, Only but, chickens back out of pipelines. <laughs> uh, but so here's the. So, so you get this massive, massive response. Um, you know, in First Nations groups and environmentalists across Canada basically approve, uh, uh, basically vowed to, to to begin this long battle uh, against Kinder Morgan, which they've already accepted. And and so that got me back to the the last point uh, that I wanted to make, which is this conversation I started last week, which I think I'll be sort of carrying on. It sort of also dovetails into the sort of plan to win thing I've been going on for, on with for a while, which is what would. Uh, what would youth be doing if they weren't standing in front of, you know, like as far as what's funny about this is that like you have these incredibly smart, incredibly talented organizers who are using their time to literally just stand in front of things, uh, which seems like a very not productive use of one's time if you're trying to build a new economy. And if you're really lucky, veterans come out and stand in front of you standing in front of things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and like I, I say that not because I think they shouldn't be standing, but because if you're the Canadian government trying to find a way to build a new economy, maybe take the people who are willing and activated to go and stand in front of things and be like, okay, we'll talk to you. Let's see what you what your solutions really are, and and let's have our, this kind of conversation that you know that that can continue to actually build a new thing. Because the one piece about this that gets ignored, um, or has been largely ignored, uh, you know, except for the people who are you know very much against it, which is that Kinder the Kinder Morgan pipeline fundamentally locks us into. A ignore like one of the lines I saw is that Trudeau beats Trump to to leaving the Paris Agreement by approving Kinder Morgan. Mm. You know, Trump still has to wait till he gets inaugurated on the tw- January twentieth. Trudeau got to do it early uh, by by approving this pipeline because the 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 spending the, the infrastructure the, like you're buying into forty years of infrastructure to something that if we're still using at this rate in forty years is going to be a massive problem and we all know that yeah. the Wall Street Journal last week had an article uh, as literally using Trudeau's uh, uh, but this was pre the announcement mm-hmm. but basically saying that look hey, you know we shouldn't we should be celebrating the fact that Trudeau wants to baby you know reinstate drill baby drill because look even the Canadians recognize that you know you can be climate leaders you can protect the environment and still build all the pipelines you want uh you know that that was the argument was to was to defend trump by referencing trudeau yeah and and, and you know here's the and, and this is the thing this is the piece that's been talked this is the piece that sort of i think it can be frustrating for people who sort of who are not who are not on side environmentalists to hear this sort of one single thing repeated over and over and over again which is just it does not meet our carbon budget like that's what you just can say to almost everything, um, and but 
to some extent, that's the only thing you can do. Like the only thing you can do in the face of this constant barrage of of of, of lack of fact um, is is to keep restating the one thing that we know. Um, and then, and then if they, and if you get, if you, if you get them past that point, then you can have this larger conversation about what you can actually do. And so like the one thing that I've been playing with in my head for the last couple of last year or so is this idea of the repair generation and this idea of what our world could look like, what a sustainable world will look like. And a big part of that is a dramatic reduction in consumption. Uh, you know, we can't be buying as much as we're buying all the time. Uh, because you know that has to get shipped across. Cost, that that you have to use fossil fuels to ship that eight times practically before you buy it. Half for most of the products we own, and so this idea of uh, of of local repairing as uh, as a, as a as a as an economic driver and a way to keep. Uh, economic uh, prosperity within, with, you know, keep money. You know, you want, to, you want to talk about Trump not exporting jobs. The one thing you can't export is a cobbler. You know, how many people actually have a cobbler these days? But they are, they are, they are, they are a small business owner that every politician apparently wants to wants to wants to suck up to. Yet, you know, they're not really getting what you want. Really want. Um, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not seen as GDP drivers and they really, really could be. And I think there's this massive opportunity to sort of look back at everything. Uh, you know, what about like looking back at, at turning everything we have now, like we've been moving away from repairability on almost everything for a very long time. And I think the, the, the new economy to some extent to which we'll have to flip that on its head. We'll have to start going back um, to things like, you know, we talk about the to modular phones on the show every once in a while because every once in a while something a new modular phone comes out and everyone's like, this makes so much sense. Why aren't we doing this? And everyone is like, I don't know. Um, Ooh, iPhone. <laughs> like, like exactly. Um, you know, and the Fairphone and Fairphone Two have come out, and they're like, and these are phones that are, are modular. So basically, you can take one part of the phone off and replace it with something else that you want, uh, or alternatively, you can repair that one piece and still keep the rest of your phone, which is n- impossible, except for the screen, really, uh, for most of the things. Um, and yet, it's it's got this clear a bit. You know, it's 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 the future. It is the future, and, and, and it might seem like hoverboards, um, but to some extent, you know, this I it, there isn't. I like I, I play this game with myself once in a while because we live in such an unsustainable society. About what it could like, what would it look like? You know, what could we do? Uh, and and these are the things. These are the things that come to mind the, of uh, of ways to sort of build uh, resilience within our communities and and find ways to to, to repair and you know the idea. The, the, what I like about the repair generation to some extent is that you start with the idea of repair generation uh, for actual repairing of things, uh, but then you expand it to this idea of like repairing our relations with with indigenous people and uh and restoring treaty rights with repairing our uh, our relation with the environment with respecting the fact that you know a pristine inlet can only be pristine as long as you accept no oil spills and mitigated oil spills or fewer oil spills still does not make it pristine anymore Mm. um and it's these little things that that sort of that lead to this sort of where i think we live in this world where everything is we think you can always have it both ways. Um, and, and one way or another in the next 20, 30 years, we're going to learn that we can't always have it both ways. You can't have your carbon price and 
40 years of energy infrastructure. Uh, you can't reduce consumption uh, and increase tr- foreign, you know, increase importing of things. Uh, you know, you can't have everything both ways and we have to make a choice of how we want to live. And one of those we is sustainable and we don't go past two degrees of global warming. And one of them, we just go past two degrees of warming and presume we'll be okay. I feel safer in one of those two worlds. Yeah. So, uh, Stefan, I just want to point out before we're at the end of the program here, I would just like to note that I went 45 minutes without being extremely sarcastic. Ah, well done. That's a personal record. You're going <laughs> to wait for more. I actually have more points. Basically, my list of four big categorical reasons why to call BS on the government's uh, recent proclamations that this uh, these pipelines are in Canada's economic interests, as well as the fact that they uh, line up to a government that's serious about climate change. You can uh, stay tuned for that. Listen to the bonus show. If you don't hear anything after this, you just hear the music and the show ended. That's because you're not listening to the full version of the show. Go to greenmajority.ca to find that and you'll hear that. We'll have a quick discussion as well. Also, I want to do a whole show about solutions one of these days. We'll yeah. get to it. We'll do a political platform as if we were running for government one of these days. Yeah, uh, but that's all the time we have for. Thank you very much for listening to our special report on Kinder Morgan pipelines in Canada. You're listening to the Green Majority. It's been our pleasure to speak to you this week. Take care and have a good Green Week. And that's it for the regular part of the program this week on the Green Majority. Thank you so much for listening to our program. We put a lot of work into it, and we hope that you appreciated uh, the content that we were able to provide you with this week. If you enjoy this sort of content so much that you would like to see more of it, and you hope that uh, we can uh, continue to provide an uh, increased level of research and uh, development on our show like we did this week, you can support us by becoming a member at greenmajority.ca or go straight to the source at patron, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash greenmajority and become a member today. A quick warning on the bonus show content. Uh, There is some colorful language. So if you are uh, around some youngins, uh, perhaps this would be a good time to put your headphones on. Other than that, have a good green week and stay tuned. All right, we're in the the bonus show for this week of our uh, special edition Kinder Morgan retrospective look oh, back yeah. look <laughs> back at the at the career and lifetime achievement of the kinder Morgan pipeline <laughs> it was so hard i'm feeling so sarcastic now it was so hard for me to be serious for so long <laughs> I, I i made it 45 minutes Stefan. i did my best that was impressive um so but that's fine we're good we have uh, we have more to come i just uh, i'm feeling and also i don't have to say bs now i can also say bullshit so nice. i i basically what's gonna happen is i have four big reasons for me why i feel i want to call bullshit on a lot of the a lot of things that justin trudeau and his government has been saying recently about this and the other pipelines as well. Uh, quickly before uh, I go to that, however, um, Stefan, I wasn't sure if you had any sort of like closing thoughts about uh, anything you didn't get to. Did we run out of time for you at all? No, or? I think uh, like I think as base like I, I I could I think I'll probably do a larger piece on the repair generation uh, that uh, that when we get to it, uh, just because I think that's actually really interesting. Uh, but as far as you know, like it's for me, it's very simple. Like for me, it's it's we cannot we can't even we. We can't even use the energy infrastructure we already have. So building more of it seems ridiculous. And that's, and then that's as far as I go. Like the only other, the only other way for me to even take this is the concern that if, that at some point the carbon bubble will pop and we will become a, 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 a dramatically poorer nation because we've invested all our money in a failing technology. And like, 
that's it. I, I have two thoughts. The first thought is it doesn't make any sense for climate change. The second thought is if we successfully do something about climate change, it will ruin our economy. And we need to transition off. We need, we, like, we need to transition off. That, like, I just don't – I don't have – larger thoughts than I just don't understand. Well, I mean, you can even do it in, in a basic way. I mean, it's, it's like a, you can do it as a thought experiment, right? Like we have a thing of which we get a lot of our, our, our income. Mm-hmm. That thing of which derives our income is, a, is we find out is going to hurt us. That doesn't make it not provide our income, but then we learn, oh, it's getting me income now, but it's going to hurt me later. So then you switch your income. Like that's, it's not, it's not <laughs> yeah. complicated, right? So it doesn't mean it's easy, but it means that that is obviously your goal, right? Yeah. And not your goal is not to like, okay, well, I'm going to try and like move my hours around so I get slightly better sleep. No, it's like, okay, well, maybe that's what you do the first day you find out and the second day. But the goal has to be not getting your income from that thing. And that was actually one of my, uh, one of my four points here that we went through. Oh, sorry. The other thing I want to mention in my rundown of the timeline, one of the things that I, that I had in my notes that I skipped over was the fact that this is not, in, in this specific pipeline's history, there were several other times where the original owners and then later Kinder Morgan uh, later in 2015, but, or 2005, but before 2005, the previous owners of the pipeline, um, had at several occasions, at least two that I could find, maybe more, had applied for permits of other expansions. And then before the process got completed, uh, market forces changed. And all of a sudden, like, oh, okay, no, we don't want this pipeline because now the, suddenly there's been a market downturn. This was well before any serious thought. I mean, we're talking about the 80s and previously. So this is well before any serious thought about you know climate change or anything like that. So I mean the idea now that for oh for now now but now this time this time we're really sure that we're going to get forty years out of use out of this thing. Well, yeah. Well, even if nothing else is 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 his it's historically inaccurate. Yeah. Well, and it's and it's 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 fundamentally based on a business as usual presumption, which flies in the face of the entire conversation you're having. It's it's just this level of doublethink that exists. That, that 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 we live in it. We live we live in it. It's com- absolute double think to to presume that we can make our climate our Paris climate com- commitments and also have another pipeline or even like or even not heavily begin the transition now. There's just it's just it's just not a con. We're just not doing it, and and that's it. And you know it it, it bothers me. I think that uh, that the left seems to successfully often win policy fights and then loses infrastructure fights because infrastructure ends up dominate ends up controlling a lot more than policy often does. Like it's very easy to undo the climate regulations that Trudeau's put in. It's very difficult to unbuild the pipeline. Yeah. And so I think there's I think that's a problem we have. But you read us your four things. So let's All right. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna shotgun them out for you. So here's my big four reasons to call bullshit on the on the recent announcement. Uh, so safety, economics, jobs, and uh, and political climate change. So safety. Uh, there was a, a, an assertion made very strongly and I think very defensively seeming. It was almost overcompensatingly defensive that all the information had been taken into account and that these, this was deemed to be a good investment on the, specifically on the safety. So we have proper spill responses in place. We know how to clean these up. If there is a problem, uh, we're, we're really, really, we promise double cross our <laughs> fingers, you know, uh, uh, whatever, sure that there that there won't be a spill, and if there is a spill, we know exactly what to do, and so don't worry, it's all safe, 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 safe. And what they did do is they added a part of the consultation. They added forty, I think, approximately forty new valves to uh, to the thing, so that to to reduce the amount of possible spill. So they like they're 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 do like they're doing a lot of things to to you know to, to attempt to address this idea of safety. 
Right. And so the, the point of there's two points on safety. Uh, so one of them is, is that enough valves? I don't know, but I know he doesn't know. And I know that nobody knows. Why do I know that? Because no matter how many valves they've put in, there's always been spills on this one pipeline over this lifespan. There's been 1.5 a year. It's been running since the fifties. So sure. Maybe we have really good net technology now, but they've never been able to keep that promise before. So what makes them sure? Oh, well, just the problem for, see, we, we had it wrong for 50 years. Uh, the problem was we need nine valves, not seven. Now we're sure that it won't happen. Okay, bullshit. Uh, second reason to call bullshit from a safety point of view is that, and this was pointed out by one of the articles, and I think this is an incredibly critical point. The, uh, the chemicals that are put into uh, the dilbit uh, and, to, uh, and that's put into the, the, the heavy bitumen uh, to help it move through the pipeline, those chemicals are proprietary. The government does not have access to what's in those what's in that. So they cannot. It is a bold faced lie to say that they are prepared to clean them up because they don't know what those chemicals are. And the company doesn't is basically just saying, oh, trust us, we'll do it. Well, it would be the first time it would be the first time. So that is bullshit times two on one point. So safety bullshit economics. Uh, this is in Canada's financial interest. As we just said, well, the, the oil market is, uh, is very complicated. We may go up, it may go down. It may, in fact, make a great deal of money for a couple of years, but will it make money for 40 years? Will the disasters and all the spills uh, be less expensive to clean up than the profit we make from it? Will this market stay strong enough for this to be very useful for 40 years? That's older than Stefan or I. Both mm-hmm. of us are under 40 years old. Uh, climate change was unimaginable to everyone, but the most breaking edge. And at that point, I think with that, but fairly labeled, you know, conspiracy theory extremists right. 40 years ago to well, say, and, and on mobile. Oh, and, and XR <laughs> not actually true. That was 10 years but later, like, but I be, just want to make that joke. To be making this uh, like at a political stage. Yeah, that would be. But like the world has changed so much in 40 years uh, and it's and it's desperately waiting, holding back to do a heck of a lot more changing. With or without Canada, the world's going to continue to change. Can Justin Trudeau really with a straight face say that he's looked in his crystal ball and he knows that for 40 years this is going to be a good investment for Canadians, uh, even without the possibility of spill cleanups and anything else that the market is going to for this stuff is going to stay stable for 40 years? And my second point on that as well, which I was I uh, hinted to earlier, and then I'll, I'll get to now, is uh, is the other one. Uh, oh dang, what I lost for a second. Okay, I'll come back to it. I'll come All back right. to it because I keep thinking of it, and then I keep forgetting what it is. Uh, but one of the other things we never talk about is the lost opportunity. So they're like, well, this is going to be worth, okay, so I'll tie this into my jobs point as well. When it comes to the uh, economic benefit to Canada and to the jobs thing, there's like, well, you know, you hear, well, climate change activists don't want the pipeline, but, you know, but, you know, proponents say this will add a certain amount to the GDP. Climate activists are concerned about environmental, uh, you know, some lakes being hurt and, you know, protecting orcas and that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's going to cost us 4,000 jobs. And every mainstream article, almost every single mainstream article that I read, ended with that they ended with the line of either line about the benefit to financial uh, canada's gdp which they have no idea uh you know it's an estimate but we don't know there's no way to, to know that the other thing is about the jobs well even if many of those jobs weren't temporary which they are uh short-term jobs a couple of years not and not in any way an investment in canada's future uh they never ever well how many jobs would a a di- would a policy that went a different direction because if you don't invest in the oil sands you have to invest you'd have to do something else it's a huge part of canada's economy so you need to have a plan 
I do have one. I won't go into it now. But there are ideas to what to do. But you have to compare it against something. To say, well, we're losing out on 4,000 jobs means, okay, we don't do it. We have no jobs. And if we do do it, we have 4,000 jobs. It doesn't. It is never, ever, ever discussed. What would the opportunity cost be? What are all the alternatives? What would those benefits be? What are the losses here versus the gains we can have elsewhere? Never discussed. So economics, because they don't have a magic ball, I call bullshit. Jobs, they don't have a magic ball. And they've never even looked at the alternatives. No comparative is made. I call bullshit. The last one is the uh, Paris Climate Agreement politics uh, three-dimensional chess argument. Uh, so one of them, the liberals are basically saying that, you know, don't worry, we have a magic way about how this is, we're still going to live up to our Paris climate agreements. Uh, nobody can seem to figure out what that is. Everyone who's gone and looked at the numbers, you know, even with the loss of coal, and, uh, you know, taking out coal uh, and everything else, uh, there's still, these numbers just don't add up. It's still, it still results in a massive increase, not a decrease in carbon. Maybe he's got a magic wand somewhere we don't know about. I guess we'll see, uh, but it's not apparent. And 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 the most important thing here is that even if you're thinking, well, you just don't understand. Okay, but then you have to make that argument. Don't to your detractors just say, shh, you don't understand. Well, you know what? We actually do understand everything that you've made available to us. We've made it. We understand everything that's been made available to us from scientists and econo- and independent economists. And none of those numbers add up. So why would we trust you? At the very least, you have to explain why the numbers we're presenting to you don't add up and tell us what we're missing. Please, by all means, explain it to us. Uh, and on the 3D chess argument, and I've heard this said, and, and uh, so it's, it's not out yet, and I don't know, I mean, for all I know, it may never get to print. I have no idea. But I recently was, uh, this week, was penning an article in response to Spora, an article by Spora Berman, uh, who I, I won't fully go through that article. If it gets posted, I will post on the show post. Well, maybe we'll go over it then. But the end of it was basically like, you know, you know, two things. One is that, well, if we were a little bit nicer and more supportive and less hostile, maybe they would listen to us more, which I just say, excuse my French, and there's going to be, you know, hide the kids ears, but fuck you for saying <laughs> that. Like, seriously, that is the most condescending, like completely disingenuous thing I've ever heard. Uh, but more importantly, it's uh, the idea of, well, maybe it's a, the other thing I've heard. And this is this to this crowd. I sort of I understand why they think that, but I disagree. So I'm not saying fuck you to these mm. people. Uh, but the well, no, you don't understand. Maybe it's all a three dimensional chess game. And he needs to give the appearance of supporting these pipelines so that he can make everybody happy and like not, you know, get washed out in the West, in, uh, in the, you know, Saskatchewan and, and, and Alberta and whatnot. And so the, to, to be give the appearance of support, but don't worry in reality, he's confident or he knows that these pipelines will never be built. Uh, but as, uh, Rona Ambrose has been pointing out, uh, he's running out of political capital. And if you maybe in secret, you've got this secret plan about how it's going to work out. But the problem of secret plan is that you can't possibly expect all the people who are opposed to this to sit there and trust you, especially when you're not even saying, don't worry, you can trust me. You're not even saying that, right? So even if this pipeline ends up backing out, he spent that entire time making enemies with everybody he should be busy making allies with. And what's going to happen, and this is my prediction, I'm not making a hard prediction, I'm not saying, you know, heard it now, quote me, you know, hear it now, quote me later. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying a, a possible outcome from this is that the liberals are going to lose because they tried to make everybody happy, instead make nobody happy. They screw up the pipeline and they get 
you know, all this uh, extremely mobilized vocal opposition. They get washed out in the next election the same way they got washed out the conservatives. And we get somebody even worse on climate policy coming in uh, instead. And then you know what they're going to do? They're all going to blame the activists exactly the way that as soon as Hillary Clinton lost, the immediate response from all of the quote unquote left wing media uh, was, well, it's all those damn Bernie Sanders people, the people that wanted somebody even more liberal than Hillary Clinton. It's your fault for not getting on board with the washy, wishy, washy version. Um, and all to that, I finally call bullshit. So, <laughs> um, yeah, like, you know, there's, it's, it's this, I, the, 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 what, what, the, the one thing I come back to, uh, is that I, I think Justin Trudeau is actually a pretty good temp thermometer for the general Canadian public. You know, I don't actually, you know, I don't actually think that the general Canadian public is more left-wing or or uh, that I would agree with the general Canadian public any more than I agree with Justin Trudeau. Um, and and so what I come to is this, this conversation of yes, it would be like what we need right now is someone to actually lead on climate. That's what we need. Um, and uh, and Trudeau is not doing that. Uh, he is, I think, very accurately doing creating a temperature that's you know that 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 is that is that is that is very that is pretty much in line with what we're getting. I, mean, I think what what I think what an average Canadian thinks is reasonable on climate change, he is doing. You know, he's he's like he and to his credit, he's got a he's got a theoretical price on carbon, which could come in if and it could stick around if he actually managed to spend if he managed to win the next election, which I think he will. Um, and 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 so I, I come down to the point of like. Okay, so we don't have a leader uh, in, 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 in Justin Trudeau, but we, which means that at least theoretically we, we need to start focusing on having a conversation with the rest of the Canadian public to make them understand actually what's happening. Um, and I think that's to me the, 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 my final takeaway on all this is that you know, I think you ask the average Canadian what, that, how, how Trudeau is doing. And I don't think they have that many that many that many that many quarrels with them. You know, they might they might if if it's anything, it's going to be it's his flip flopping and proportional representation, um, and and how bad and and that whole debacle, uh, which you know may or may not ever get solved. Uh, but the rest of it is you know he's he's just kind of flying in line with what I think actually Canadians think. Yeah. And. And that's a problem for us because we need the Canadians to, to understand the, the, the direness of the situation we live in, but w- they don't. Um, and, and, and so we have to figure out how to communicate with them. Right. And I think and, – and, and some might interpret what you just said in my agreement with what you just said as, a, as an indictment of what I just said before that, right? right? But the, the, the reality is like, oh, so what do you expect them to do, right? That would be a reasonable assessment. Well, here's what I expect them to do. If your job is simply to be a, bar- a barometer of public opinion, then congratulations. As I've said many times on this program before, uh, your software. <laughs> I, can, I can ask a coding friend of mine to write software that just assesses poll results and comes to policy decisions based on that. You're not a leader. Don't call yourself a leader. If all you're doing is assessing what the most, you know, uh, tasteful path forward that will please the most amount of people to me, a leader. And and maybe that's some people's definition of what the prime minister should do. And and we respectfully disagree on that. To me, what a prime minister should do is look out for the best interests of Canadians, whether or not they know what that is. And the, the thing is, we need to hold the prime minister to a higher standard than your average Canadian. 
right? They have access to much greater resources, much greater information, much greater. Uh, they're supposed to be, you know, the best of us. Uh, they're supposed to be smarter, faster, you know, whatever, any of that stuff. But they should, we should be holding them to a higher standard. And the, the office of the prime minister and, or anyone who is in a position of authority like that is often referred to as having a bully pulpit, which is that as the leader of a country, you have an unprecedented and unparalleled access to the media. And you can use that to influence public positions. And this is the thing that can, politicians and Canadians uh, in Canada, with the exception of Elizabeth May, don't seem to remember, which is that you're not just there to go and assess what your base thinks. And then go and think of arguments, whether they're valid or not, that appear to support that base. If you're intellectually honest and you want to be an actual leader who's actually representing the best interest of Canadians, what you have to do when you have that information, when you know certain policies, is go out is in is go out and influence public opinion and go out. And this is one of the things I covered in that may or may not be published article, which was what I expect Justin Trudeau to be doing, which is what people ask me all the time. Well, what do you expect him to do? Well, I expect him to be going out there and calling out Ian Anderson and saying your position on climate change is factually incorrect. Even if he approved the pipeline, he should have said that because that's true. It's true. And he knows it's true. Uh, he needs to be going out and calling Brad Wall and say, looking, you know, I'm, I understand you're a popular leader in your thing and, and, you've, and you've done, you know, what you think is best for Saskatchewan. But as the leader of Canada, I have to do what's best for Canada. And you are factually incorrect on climate change. You're just wrong on climate change. And I th- I'm afraid that the reason that, that Justin Trudeau and other similar leaders like him doesn't want to do that is because not calling them out and getting, saying climate change is serious on one hand, but not calling out the people who deny it and standing on stages smiling with them instead allows them to occupy this comfortable middle where they where all they have to do is that. Because if they called out Ian Anderson, if they called out Brad Wall, then they might actually have to do something more than what they're doing because their actions would be seen to be not lining up to their rhetoric. But by allowing deniers to be a legitimate part of the conversation – that shifts the conversation to the right and makes him look super left wing when in reality, I think he's much closer to the center. And as I think Canadians are, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, I, so the last thing I'll say on that is the thing I, I just remembered what I was getting to earlier, which was, <laughs> let's say the only conversation is when do we dig up the oil sands, right? Let's say that's the only conversation. If that's the only thing we're considering, when do we dig it up? Do we dig it up as quickly as possible right now? Or do we hold on to it? Well, if your interest is the pipeline companies, you dig up as much of it as you possibly can right away. But that's not necessarily what's in Canada's best interest because, okay, say this is a carbon-constrained world. The price is going to go up and down, and as, as renewable energy comes online, you know, there's going to be price shocks and this and that whatnot. So the price is going to be variable. But over time, there are people that say that, well, we're going to be stuck with this no matter what we do for a long time. They're right. We're going to be using oil for a long time no matter what we do, right? So if, if I was a leader who even wanted to – who didn't even care about climate change but was at least accepted that climate change – was it real thing or at least recognize that other people think it's a real thing, right? Understanding that the world we live in is a world that is increasingly recognized climate change as a real thing would say to myself, hey, maybe what's in the best interest of Canada and seeing as it's, it's going to get me a lot of political points uh, to be, you know, to, to both support the oil sands and do this. I can go out in a bully pulpit and say, look, I think people are going and, uh, you know, overblowing this whole climate change thing, but it's the way the world is going. So we are going to continue to burn oil and, you know, screw you environmentalists. We're going to keep doing that, but we're not going to expand it. What we're going to do right now to keep in line with the future technology of the world and the direction that all the world economies are going eventually is we're going to get on this renewable energy bandwagon. Uh, it's already showing uh, that it's uh, reaching price parity. If we invest in it heavily uh, and continue to support it and continue to subsidize it instead of the oil industry for now, that price will come down and be cheaper than oil. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to save all that excess oil until there is a much more 
uh, carbon constrained world and that resource is worth way way more to that price is way 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 higher and then we will dig it up that's that's the that's a better policy than I think Carver Justin Trudeau is doing, and that's my best impersonation of it. At least a a a well informed outside of being a denier denier leader. Well, the the I, <clears throat> the 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 fatal may not fatal flaw, but the only flaw the not the only the one of the 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 thing that you could be said about that um, is you can call it fatal. I just made that up. Okay, now. sure. The fatal flaw to that is that if we if you got to the point where Oil, where we had where we had used enough oil that the price would get up to be the most expensive. We exist in a world that has fifteen to twenty degrees of warming. We exist in a world where where we are we are not in a good place. <laughs> like you know, we are. It's it's you know, unless we've unless we found a way to take the oil uh, and then use it for a. Uh, you know, first, you know, if we're shipping it off, like using, like, you know, maybe we're trying to create a real atmosphere in Mars by burning tons of fossil fuels on Mars. Uh, oh, that's a way we could theoretically burn oil um, and 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 not live in a in an entire world unless one is, which like you know, leads to the last point of this whole thing, which is like, we just can't burn it. We just yeah. can't. But basically, the idea would be like, you know. Keep all the projects running at their current speed, but don't approve any new pipelines, which all they do is increase capacity, right? Right. We keep capacity flat. You keep going. You just create a moratorium. We're going to stick with our capacity to stretch our reserves out from 40 years to 60 years at current rate instead of rushing it all out today. Even That's a terrible policy, <laughs> but that's still, I think, better than what we've heard this week. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, it, it, like – the argument for doing it right now is that we'll be in order that in twenty thirty years there we'll be using less oil and therefore the price of oil will, will, will bottom out. Which is the concern I raised at the very beginning of this entire show. Which is that if the price of oil bottoms out, we are screwed. <laughs> yeah, we're and screwed either way. Yeah, this is bad. Yeah, that's all. That, that, it, it sounds like at the end of the day, what I'm discussing is if you're in quicksand, is it better to hold still or struggle? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, we're at, we, we're going to try and keep it tight, and we got to 23 minutes. Thank oh, you very much for it. staying late with me today, Stefan. Yeah, and thank course. you, everybody, for listening. Have a good green week. Woo.